0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mike on the Podium with me Michael Seal. Today I'll be conducting a conversation with a conductor I first met 30 years ago, not long after he had won the Leeds Conducting Competition. He's had a very successful career, holding positions in the UK, Europe and Japan, and he is currently music director of English National Opera. I'm delighted to welcome Martin Brabbins. Welcome Martin, how lovely to speak to you.
1: You too, Mike.
0: Um, I want to start, if I may, right at the very beginning. What were your very, very first, earliest musical experiences?
1: My first, well, I, as a youngster, we moved around quite a lot. I think we lived in four or five places before I was eight. And then when we landed in a place called Toaster, which is spelt T-O-W-C-S-T-E-R. Uh, nothing to do with bread at all. Mm-hmm. When I joined the school, the primary school there, the, the mates that I made were all, seemed to be, members of Toaster Studio Brass Band. So I thought to myself, why not have a go? I asked my mum, would you mind? Because uh, I remember her being having quite a, an antipathy towards the, the treble recorder, which I fully understand. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. um, he was more than happy for me to go and try the brass band. So, yeah, I went and the, they gave me an instrument. A lovely old guy called William Bell, who seemed, from this distance, he seemed to be an ancient uh, gentleman, gave me my first uh, lessons on, well, I think it was the baritone horn at that point. So I then, I then moved on to the euphonium quite soon after.
0: And uh, from a euphonium, I read that you then went on to become a trombonist as well.
1: Yeah, well, I spent all my teens pretty passionate about brass banding. I don't know if you knew or you know anything about brass band, the world itself. It's a, a very specific world. Much of its energy and attention and perhaps too much of it is focused on competitions. And of course, once you start getting quite good, want to get better and then you hear other bands that are even better so you you strive to to win competitions there was a whole cohort of us youngsters that drove the band quite strongly in in the in my teenage years. Um, I went to a a very nice uh, comprehensive school in Toaster called Spon School we had a lot of musical stuff going on I, I again I I sang a lot in choirs. I performed in Gilbert and Sullivan's and, you know, I I played the euphonium in the school band and, and so on. But then when it came to thinking about my future, knowing I was going to talk to you, I do remember my career, having a meeting with a careers advisor. And obviously I was okay at music. You know, I got grade eight distinction when I was about 13. So, you know, I was obviously, that was something I could do. But the only other thing I could do really was run fast and play rugby. (laughs) the careers advisor said oh why don't you think about the military band joining a military band and you know i thought oh i don't know if that really that's my my thing and it wasn't to be i wanted to go and study music seriously because of course i did music gcse music a level and then applying to music colleges on the euphonium i think the royal academy would have accepted me as as a euphonium player had i had i wanted to do that but i really wanted to do a university degree in order to get into university i needed to take up the trombone because it was a a legitimate orchestral instrument and again it wasn't such a huge jolt the the basic thing about brass playing is you know there's the there's the technological stuff with your your arms and the slide if you're a trombonist, or your fingers if you're a, uh, you know, a horn player or a trumpet player. Or... But for me to transfer to the trombone wasn't so difficult because it's exactly the same pitch as the euphonium. So the mouthpiece was the same, the length of the tubing slightly different, but you got the same end result. So you know, it, it took me a while to get the right sort of sound learn where the positions were on the on the slide but yeah I moved to the trombone when I was about 17 I suppose.
0: Uh, excuse my ignorance but it's also the same embouchure as well is it?
1: Yeah absolutely yeah all, all the same yeah and in fact you know we're in a, a specific time of, of life at the moment with this uh, coronavirus and I'm playing the euphonium every day and I'm loving it. <laughs> oh wonderful
0: oh that's great so tell us where did you go to university?
1: Uh, I, I ended up going to Goldsmiths University, University of London, and it's uh, based down in South London in a rather salubrious spot called New Cross. <laughs> um, quite a tough area, I remember. I, I went to university in 1977, you know, a long, long time ago. And uh, it, things down there were, there was a lot of racial strife and tension down in that part of London, Deptford, New Cross. It was a tough area, and it sort of was quite a jolt going from fairly small town in the Midlands down to the big city, and you know, just experience a whole new life. But I must say, it was it was wonderful. I had a great time at Goldsmiths. I spent three years as an undergraduate, you know, and you study. I studied the trombone. I had a wonderful teacher called Les Lake, who uh, was bass trombonist in the English National Opera Orchestra, which of course is quite significant to me (laughs) these days. Um, And I love the academic side. I also studied composition. And after graduating, I had a couple of options. I auditioned for what was a a thing that was actually based at Goldsmiths, called the National Centre for Orchestral Studies, which was a one year postgraduate course where you just played in an orchestra. Funded student orchestra, a wonderful thing. My wife actually did that course. I got a place and decided I didn't really see my future purely as a trombone player. So I I didn't take up the place. I did though do a two-year postgraduate master's in composition, which I loved. I thought at that point maybe that was where I was destined to go, but that also wasn't to be. Um, And then uh, in 1982 when that all finished i was out in the in the wide world of london music making as a freelance player playing trombone and euphonium teaching brass for the ilea and a london education authority and for croydon and conducting a little bit i must say i mean i i'd always had a little bit of a a passion for conducting and it, it gradually emerged like a very Reluctant uh, flower budding, you know, it was something that I always wanted to do really strongly, but never really had the the confidence to do it. But it started after I graduated. I I started doing a few things. I was wondering
0: when the conducting would appear. It seems that it it was something that was bubbling away in the background,
1: um, and then yeah, I, it sort of s- slowly started to take over. Yeah, I wonder whether with most people as a Things like that emerge, you know. I I didn't, as a teenager, there was no way I thought I'm going to be a conductor, but it was something that I was fascinated by. Even in the brass band, we had a wonderful, wonderful uh, sort of main conductor. It was a William Sculls, his name was. He was a Salvation Army musician, and he was extraordinary. I still remember the things he said, you know. It was, to me about how you get players to do things and how you make how you make a crescendo work you know if you see a crescendo you just play a bit quieter <laughs> and, things, <you> know, <laughs> and he would use phrases like you know just a fag paper gap between those two notes you know I can remember so much yeah. from that that guy from all those years ago and then yeah I, it kind of emerged I suppose I felt that I didn't have the right credentials as a brass band boy, as a you know working class background. uh, I saw myself not in the you know I saw other young conductors out there and saw the routes that they'd taken to get to where they they got to and I thought "Mm, that's not necessarily I'm not I'm a bit of a square peg in a round hole Mm. But, you know, I started doing a bit. The first paid conducting I did, and I must tell you about this, mm. was this, every Wednesday afternoon I would catch the train from Waterloo down to Claygate, which is somewhere down, you know, Surrey-ish. And I conducted the Claygate Townswomen's Guild Choir for two hours on a Wednesday afternoon. And it was people by sweet elderly ladies i remember the, the secretary she used to write out little pay, paying chits for me her name was doris smith and i can still i still remember that really fondly and it was quite instructive you know if you can make something happen with i don't know there were only about 15 of them on a good day if you can make something happen uh, from that from those you know if that was your 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 source material then perhaps uh, you you had a a chance of making other more able people create something too. So, yeah, there was that. And I conducted, I think, for about two years, the El Dorado Operatic Society.
0: Oh, what a wonderful night.
1: Yeah. We did South Pacific. We did Fiddler on the Roof. And Karen, my wife, was the fiddler. Uh, we did Half a Sixpence. So, you know, I did lots of kind of that kind of stuff. Mm. and the brass band didn't disappear. The conductor that I mentioned earlier, William Scholes, retired, and I was probably about 23 or something, 22, 23, and I went and conducted the band that I was a player in, as in my school, in my school days. So I used to catch a train up to uh, Milton Keynes or wherever and uh, get a lift up to Toaster, Every Tuesday and Friday night, where I had two two spa- smashing ears with them. Again, you gain so much experience of uh, you know how to make things happen, and yeah, uh, on it went.
0: So, what took you from being the conductor of the the band in Toaster to? St Petersburg or Leningrad maybe as it was then and studying with Ilya Musin.
1: Yeah amazing isn't it? What a journey. Um, what happened? Well I, I carried on you know conducting bands and conducting little bits and pieces and teaching, playing, composing and sort of getting frustrated. Hmm. You know there's a, a sense of frustration all the time and I remember Karen and I got married in 1985. We were very you know, happily, comfortable. Karen had a nice job. I, I was busy as a freelancer, and financially everything was fine. But I was un- un- there was this frustration. Karen and I used to go to concerts all the time, and I'd always sit behind the orchestra watching the conductor. And you know, it was something I was. It became something I had to do. Mm. So there came a moment. I remember we we were driving back from having spent a couple of days on the south coast somewhere. And I said to Karen this has got to stop I've got to do something I've got to do one thing properly be it conducting then great so I applied for three things at that point I applied for a British council scholarship to go and study in in Leningrad uh, I applied for a teacher training course and I applied to be assistant head of music at St Paul's girls school assistant to Hilary Daven-Wetton at the time so as luck would have it, I was offered all three. <laughs> so, I, obviously, I took the scholarship to to Leningrad. That partly was inspired by shan Edwards, who I knew I'd played in various little orchestras that she um, put together and conducted. And I got to know shan a little bit, and she said to me at one point, well, why don't you, you know, do what I did? I must have called her and said, look, I'm frustrated as... As, as can be, what what do I do? And yeah, that's that's how it happened. British Council, thank goodness, came up. Trumps, and in nineteen eighty six, September eighty six, I went off to to Leningrad uh, <laughs> with lots of clothes, warm mm-hmm. clothes, uh, a few scores, and a very very basic knowledge and skill of conducting, which Mussing quickly found out I had a very basic <laughs> knowledge and skill. And got me, you know, really took me back to the beginning and worked, worked with me for a year. I had a lot of fantastic opportunities while I was there, but the biggest of which came towards the end of my first year. I was asked by Valeri Gergiev if I would assist him the following year, following autumn, at the Kirov on a production of Don Giovanni. So I applied for a second year of scholarship. And luckily that came up too. So I spent two incredible years uh, in in Russia, you know, living in that society, uh, surrounded by those incredible musicians, but also experiencing, you know, the hardship of the winters, uh, the the, the lack of produce in the shops, the hardship of life generally, which uh, we in in the relatively pampered West Certainly didn't understand at that point. It was extraordinary two years and it changed my life.
0: So, can you give us an insight into how Musin taught what he taught you? I mean, amongst us conductors, there are probably two great teachers in Europe, at least in the 20th century it's Ilya Musin and uh, from Finland, Jorma Panela. So, what was Musin like?
1: Well, he was. As a human being, he was very, very hum- humble, very gentle, extraordinarily wise and intelligent, widely read, um, and quite old. So he had a lot of experience. You know, he 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 enrolled at the conservatoire the same time as Shostakovich. In the same, you know, he was in the same queue lining up to enrol. Wow. He was at the premiere of the first symphony of Shostakovich, which Shostakovich wrote as a graduation exercise. He was in the first. Him and Yevgeny Mravinsky, who of course conducted the Leningrad Philharmonic for fifty years,
0: yeah.
1: he and Musin were the first two students of Nikolai Malko. So when the class in Leningrad was established by Malko, they were the first two students. So Musin had this extraordinary wealth of experience of life and Hardship, I mean he was jewish and certainly didn't wasn't uh, looked favorably on for You know big conducting jobs or, or What have you he had a very traumatic wartime experience where he was chief conductor in minsk in Belarusia, which was Absolutely decimated by the german advance yeah. and he and his wife Separately got separated And walked to Moscow, which is something like, I don't know, eight or 900 kilometers. Um, You know, he'd experienced such an incredible life. But as a teacher, he also had, when I got there, he already had about 50 years of teaching experience. You know, he was in his mid 80s when I got there. Um, Still quite healthy, although he had a weak heart. Um, He would go off every now and again for... A week of rest and respite. Um, How did he teach? Well, he he was very methodical uh, with both with baton technique and the process through which he taught. So I spent my first few weeks conducting in front of a mirror to no sound with one of his assistants, just getting me to be able to conduct a beautiful legato. all different beating patterns then he taught me the his famous circles which uh, (laughs) i use in my own teaching when i when i get the opportunity which is something very special to specific to moose he taught me a a special way of uh, using the wrist in uh, faster music and then he would get one of the pianists there were two pianists in the class to play orchestral scores i got for about three or four days, I had half an hour with one of the pianists and she would just be playing very simple four bar phrases and getting, Moosin would be getting me to conduct these things so that the actual beat connected to the sound that one heard that was, mm-hmm. was played. So you weren't just connecting, you weren't conducting black dots on a white page, you were actually connecting the gesture to the sound. And that was the the most amazing thing about his teaching that after a while you got to feel the sound of the orchestra in your in your gestures. Um, so we moved on to repertoire. It went, you can imagine, it just started with things like Haydn, Mozart, early Beethoven and that would be for a few months and then I progressed maybe a Weber overture and it was all a very very structured list of repertoire which he you know he listed for, for year one of study, you do these pieces for year two, and so on. Yeah. And at the end of my first year, one of the amazing things about that course was there was an orchestra on, in the conservatoire, a professional orchestra made up of, you know, maybe the odd alcoholic, <laughs> the odd uh, political dissident, uh, some young, younger players. A rough and ready kind of orchestra, but they were there. I think it was probably three mornings each week for the conducting faculty to be let loose on. And over the over the course of that first year, I I conducted them regularly. I didn't. I never spoke to them, or hardly ever, apart from a good morning. Musin said, "No, you don't talk. You do everything with your hands." Well, wow, that's so you don't Yeah, it was amazing. You weren't. Uh, he wouldn't let you stop and rehearse. If it went wrong, you did it again, but you then did it right, so that it was, the, so they did it right. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say that that principle is, is a is a golden rule for me. If something's wrong in a in a rehearsal, very often, not always, of course, very often it's it's the conductor has caused that problem, yeah. and that stemmed very much from from that early lesson with and He said, if you conduct well, they'll play well, and I. I I stuck with that. I stick with that rule to to this very day. But at the end of my first year there, which was, I remember it very. I still remember every May the fourteenth. I remember because it was May the fourteenth, nineteen eighty seven. I conducted a performance of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony with the orchestra. So it was the end of year concert for the foreign conductors, and I got the big, big um, slice of the cake. And that was, that was the moment where it all kind of started to fall into place. You come back from Leningrad and back to the UK.
0: And the next thing that pops up on your CV is a competition. And you said earlier on that you, you, you're not too sure about competitions in music, but you won the Leeds conducting competition. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a couple of weeks after I got back from Russia. It was extraordinary timing. It was a yeah a very intense period. Of course, I knew I'd been accepted on the course, on the competition while I was still in Russia. So Musin kindly went through various bits of the repertoire. I remember us going through Beethoven five. Um, we went through Dvorak symphonic variations. We went through the Bartok dance suite. So he helped me prepare. As much as he was able you know without this was in his living room at home i remember but uh, we went through these things and then yeah i went up to leeds and uh, it was kind of a, all a bit hazy i remember i stayed in some bed and breakfast up the street there and wandered down every day and did my bit with the amazing orchestra from opera north and there was charles groves and david lloyd jones and a couple of other folk on the on the panel and you, you hoped you know, you'd know you done enough to get through. And at the end of the day, you'd sit down in this little room and they'd announce who went through to the next round and so on it went and then there was the final and there were, I think there were four of us in the final. And I have to say, I rather felt at the time I'd drawn the short straw. There was a, a Tchaikovsky, The Tempest, I think. There was um, Firebird Suite, something else uh, which i can't remember and then i had this as i mentioned earlier the symphonic variations of dvorak which if you know it is kind of i know is it 28 variations and a fugue i mean it's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's surreal so yeah
0: it's a it's a big but old I, piece um quite yeah, rambling piece it, yeah
1: it rambles and it's got so many different gear changes and tempo changes and variations and and you know i was absolutely Gung ho, and I'd committed it to memory, and I did the, did it from memory in the final, and it went pretty well. um But you know, it's not a flashy piece, so I was expecting expecting the worst. But uh, thank goodness, I I came out on top. And you know, from that moment, you know, a career is nowhere near guaranteed, but at least you've got a pretty good kick up the backside to get you started. And you know, there's a cash prize, there were invitations to I don't know eight or ten orchestras probably and as you as you very well know if you do if you do okay and they like you you, that's how you'll develop a career because you'll get asked back so yeah
0: and so yeah you're out there now in the big wide world with guest conducting engagements and commitments at any stage are you thinking now about uh, being a music director somewhere or you're just happy getting out there, forging a career, getting your diary filled up with work. Is that what you were thinking? Or did you already think, do you know what? I'd love to be a music director somewhere.
1: No, it's not, it's not my way. I am fr- I was just, I couldn't, you know, I was grinning all over my face just being out there as a conductor. And there was very little thought into progress or journey. It, it was quite slow, I must say, getting going. And i have no problem with that i mean i was quite a late starter i was 28 or 29 when i won the competition so that's quite old in these days of uh, young conductors that's very true but, yeah but um you know i i i was really happy just to forge a steady way forward and make you know, make mistakes in, in 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 private, and you will have experienced some of those as leader of the Kent County Youth Orchestra in one of my early concerts that I uh, engaged I remember it
0: very, very well, uh, but very, very fondly, actually, as well. Um, it was a really good week, and I remember the first time I played for you in the profession, bouncing up to you and saying, do you remember me? And, and you, fortunately, you did. Um, but yeah, I remember that week with my County Youth Orchestra incredibly fondly.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I did... Kent, I did Sheffield, I did a few other youth orchestras and you, you know, you, you really can get to learn repertoire and you can begin to understand how how things work. One of the early big, I suppose I'll call it a big break, was to get to conduct the BBC Scottish. I say that it's a, it was a big opportunity because I still conduct them, you know, this is 28 years later or something. So for me, that relationship with that orchestra has been a thread of pure gold through my whole life. You know, one of the guys in the in the marketing team the, a couple of years ago came up to me with a list of pieces I'd done with them. It's over a thousand pieces. My right, God! F- wow! Yeah, so, so you know, you that's where I've really learnt what I I, I probably I've learnt probably learnt more with them than. Than with any in any other way uh, throughout through, over the years, so I'm incredibly grateful to them. People often ask me about have often asked me about ambition over the years. I just want to do things better with great musicians and great orchestras and so on. The one ambition I suppose I would have is to conduct more Wagner. So maybe that might be possible as music director for an opera house. One, one will see.
0: So you were principal guest conductor with the Royal Flemish Philharmonic, but also music director with the Nagoya Philharmonic in Japan. What can you tell us about the differences between playing, mindset, um, attitude between those orchestras?
1: Mm, That is an interesting cultural uh, question. Japanese orchestras are very, very specific. I've conducted a few now. I mean, I love them. They're incredibly disciplined uh you turn up to the first rehearsal and basically they play everything that's there especially the fiddle players it's extraordinary the other great thing about japanese orchestras in in a sense again as i would say specifically the strings is that they all play in a very very similar way they're all schooled in you know in a in a certain style which is can be very beneficial to ensemble and to phrasing and articulation it's the same people ask me about russian orchestras sorry to digress but people uh-huh. ask me you know what makes them special and i think again it's because most of those string players will have learned the, that russian style russian school of playing and that's what gets that rich string sound whereas with a european orchestra like the royal flemish you know they've got amazing strengths as well but they're made up i think the royal flemish i'm not exaggerating have about 20 different nationalities in the in the orchestra including japanese but also including russians british american bulgarians romanians french you you name it so there's a different attitude to you know there's not a corporate attitude you can tell a joke to a british orchestra and everyone will understand you tell a joke in 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 antwerp and you know half of them three quarters of them got a clue what you're talking about so uh, <laughs> But the other, the other big difference about chief guest to um, music director, of course, is that there's a much greater responsibility as music director in, in artistic planning, um, pastoral care with the musicians, you know, just contact with the musicians, contact with the media, uh, you know, the the public. It's a it's a, a bigger bigger challenge altogether. And that was interesting in Japan. They, they're a wonderful orchestra, wonderful group of people, uh, interesting management. I mean, I was flabbergasted to find, because they're sponsored by Toyota, that some of the higher management people were Toyota employees. Kind of checking, I mean, this isn't, probably not how you best phrase it, kind of checking the, the Toyota's money was being spent in the right way. <laughs> you know, it was uh, unbelievable for to me to think that an orchestra could be set up in that way, but that's that's quite common in Japan. Uh, so yeah, there were there were many challenges to to rise to, but uh, it was it, working in Japan. I find fantastic. I go back to an orchestra in Tokyo and I go back to Nagoya, of course, Uh, most years and there's something about the culture and the audiences which is so special you know I was there in Tokyo in the autumn and we did a program it was in January actually we did a program of Ravel, uh, Macmillan and Elgar and the hall was full absolutely full you couldn't get a seat for, for love nor money and the audience were really they're really so warm and supportive and quiet quietly attentive but then when when the music finishes wow they let you know they've had a good time
0: you were lucky enough or maybe you'll contradict me to be the conductor of the sixth live performance of havergal brian's gothic symphony i wonder <laughs> whether you could tell us a little bit
1: about how that was
0: to put that monster of a piece together
1: oh gosh no i do find i do feel lucky to have done that it was an, an totally memorable uh, experience not just the performance but the whole journey to get there i mean so we ended up with 990 performers in the oh, album you, so you couldn't find 10 more <laughs> we did we had them but they was there was there was sickness we hoped for a thousand but oh. it didn't quite matter. so uh yeah you can just you know think about any piece that's got that number of performers in it and you can imagine the logistical the struggle we had putting it together so the most fortunate thing in in the process was um that we had a producer of a of the bbc national orchestra of wales who were one of the two orchestras the other being the bbc concert orchestra who had been involved in a performance before now that proved invaluable he kind of knew where the the all the logistical problems were and i remember spending several hours with a few guys putting together a plan of action. You know, how many choruses would we need? Well, it ended up with six symphonic choruses. How many children's choruses would we need? Well, it ended up with two, one of whom was the CBSO Youth Chorus, as you're uh, connected. Um, Soloists were quite, it was just four soloists, but the two orchestras in themselves, that's already quite a number of musicians, were not sufficient to fill fill all the all the seats. I mean, there were eleven clarinet parts. Oh, for wow. so, <laughs> uh, there were off there were four offstage brass bands with timps in each each one of them, uh, which were in the Albert Hall were sort of on the side stalls here. To my two on one side, two on the other. There was an offstage trumpet choir of I think nine players that played. For about 20 seconds they were up in the balcony up above the organ there was an off stage bit of soprano and on stage soprano uh, there was organ it, it just went on and on so the choruses you could, how how do they rehearse they all rehearsed individually i mean the the parts it was split into two choirs by Br- havergal Bryan, but then it's multiple Divisi within those choirs. I think at some points there's something like 48 individual parts going on in the choruses. Uh, they all rehearsed it separately. And then again, Birmingham features, we had, I remember having a day in the town hall with two amplified pianos on stage, me, a number of chorus masters, I can't remember how many, and the 500 or so choristers to try and mould the thing into some kind of shape. orchestras we rehearsed in Cardiff, we managed to rehearse some of it in the studio uh, of the the BBC, but then when we put the whole thing together for part two, just the orchestras, we had to go to a much much bigger venue in Cardiff. Then we all decamped to London, we had Rehearsals in Alexandra Palace, which is in Woodgreen, North London. Massive, massive spaces. Yeah, yeah. And we had, uh, we, we had Tutti Orchestra, then we had Tutti with the choruses and the soloists. And finally, we had a couple of sessions in the Albert Hall to try and get this thing into some kind of shape. It, part one is okay in that it's purely orchestral. But the biggest part of the piece, the second part, uh, with all the forces we we didn't get really to play it through in one go we we didn't have the time to to do a run through simply because it was so complicated getting things t- together i mean you know you can imagine how far away from me some of those people were but then the performance came it sold the i remember the, the the concert sold out in 2 hours and it was packed it was packed with musicians of course <laughs> and um I think you know one thing i love about concerts and quiet endings is the silence you get at the end of a concert and i think we had 35 seconds of silence at the end of that one and it's one of the um, absolutely memorable feeling of going through this tumultuous two hours of music making and ending up with this extraordinary silence which then erupted into cacophonous you know uproarious applause and it was yeah, it was an amazing, amazing night not to be forgotten by actually for, probably for most people, players I come across still talk about it if they were involved. Yeah, that was something else. I mean, I'm one, I suppose going back to ambition, my, my other ambition would be to conduct that piece again and be the only conductor ever to conduct it twice. So
0: in 2016, you became... The music director of English National Opera, and so you've been there now four years. Have you enjoyed it?
1: Oh, it's amazing. I love being music director of ENO. I mean, it's just an extraordinary group of people. From, you know, the wig makers through to the makeup artists, the stage management through to the amazing orchestra and chorus. Um, we have a, a over four years. You get to know people. You get to be feel part of a of extraordinarily passionate and brilliant team and to feel you know that when you're in the pit there that you're leading this these amazing performances that they put on it's yeah it's it's extraordinary it has its challenges as everybody that knows anything about english national opera will will know but i think every opera company in the world has extra challenges which are you know we we live to to face those challenges and Currently, we're in one at the moment. You know, we've had to cancel several performances. I had five more performances of Butterfly to do when uh, the theatres closed. We'd done the first night of an amazing new production of Figaro, so six or seven performances that cancelled, and there was a beautiful Rosalca in the making which didn't even get to the stage. So, oh, that in itself is heartbreaking. Such a shame.
0: Yeah, real shame. When you come to learn a new score are you the sort of conductor who goes through it methodically writes an awful lot of things in the score or do you go to the piano and learn it at the piano and then rather keep your scores clean?
1: Uh, I'm not much of a pianist so that doesn't really help me I do do a little bit of work at at the piano scores I read through initially and with a pencil just a, a 3b Mitsubishi special that I pick <laughs> up in Japan. um I don't mark my scores very much. I find it distracting, especially colours and goodness knows what. I, 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 yeah, they would put me off in performance. I, I read through. I sit on trains and read scores and look at scores. And people look at me and think I'm some kind of strange person. But well, they're probably right. You know, I use my travelling time to learn scores. I, le- I. I'm a voracious score learner I love learning scores and the more I conduct the more the kind of more efficient I am at it so it's something that is second nature to me now to to be able to read scores and imagine what what's going on even you know I conduct quite a few premieres and can get to the the nub of things I I put a bit of that down to the fact that I i'm very sympathetic because i trained as a composer i know the pain they all go through um and i listen to recordings you know i'm not i'm not ashamed to admit that i know some some might be no i listen to listen widely i don't listen to one recording over and over that would be fatal um one thing i do enjoy listening to if so when i come back to Chike five like i did the other day in the past although i didn't do it this time I've gone back and listened to my own performances of it which have been broadcast on on the BBC and you, I can you know get copies of I find that fascinating because you feel when you're conducting something oh yeah that that was okay you know that corner went quite well and then you listen back and you you then realize oh no I microscopically because you know I don't think people quite realize how precise tempo is mm. if you're out by 1% you may as well be out by 25%. so that's when i that's when those recordings of your own performances can be so revealing because you think you've done it in one way but when you're actually doing it you're involved in in doing it and and that's that means your ears are not quite as free as when you're just listening to something so yeah that can be a fascinating learning uh, tool especially tempos you know, tempo is usually okay but it's the corners when you're turning corners do you do it just right do you make the transitions work in really in the way you want so that that can be fascinating
0: i i've seen an interview where one conductor it was paulo yevi actually says that that not listening to recordings is a foolish way forwards if you if these all of these recordings now and videos and youtube and spotify they're all there and you should listen to as many recordings as possible when learning a new piece, because you hear how other people do it, you hear rights, you hear wrongs, you form opinions. And and then another conductor, um, Simon Rattle, said he listens to it very, very early in the learning process and very late, and then maybe after, even after he's performed it, somebody else's performance. This snobbish um, premise that some people have, oh, no, no, I would never listen to another person's performance before I learn the score, it seems to be, rather cutting their own noses off to spite their face
1: yeah i'm i'm with you on that i think because there's, there's everything to be gained uh, by listening um and experiencing you know other other ways of doing it, it doesn't mean saying at, at all at all that you're going to do it that way no. but it's it can teach you so much and there's you know you, you i love watching people like Abardo. Um, you, you just see this kind of the spiritual nature that he gets in it, and who's the who's the the old Swedish guy? Oh, Herbert Blomstedt. Herbert Blomstedt. I mean, it's like a religious experience that he goes through, and the way he 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 creates an aura. You know, there's something about conductors that has to create something more than just you know the the obvious stuff, and it's amazing. I mean, again, you one doesn't emulate how they do it but it's amazing to see what these people do and how one's personality is incredibly important in uh, in how what the performance is and how the performers respond to you as a conductor.
0: You are a visiting professor at the Royal College of Music in conducting, do you enjoy teaching? If so, is your teaching influenced at all by your experiences with Ilya Musin or is it a mixture of that and then your experiences of being a conductor?
1: Yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit of both, obviously. One one has to put one's own way of doing things. I I'm I'm not Mousin, so I approach it very differently to him and I don't teach in the long process way that he does. I just don't have time to do that. So yeah, I I I put my own way of doing it, but it's all influenced everything I do as a conductor really has at the background the Moosin principles so I do try and uh, use those I mean I did teach on a conducting summer school in Orkney for 10 or 12 years a two-week thing that I I founded this course and that was incredibly rewarding because over we had eight students each year and you really it's just following on from what I said about conductors having a certain personality or aura or presence you need really to, in order to teach someone to conduct you need to know them as a person you need to know how they tick you need to know what hang-ups they have a little bit or where their strengths are or you know what might need curbing what might need exaggerating and over that two-week period in Orkney we used to really get to know one another because you were captive in Orkney. You know, you're, it's, yeah. there's not much to do, no. and we, it was a very intensive course. We had six hours a day minimum of teaching, and we really got to the heart of certain people, and I think you know, in a in a in a positive way. So, yeah, as much as I I do have a hang up about technique, I think technique has to be addressed. You know, you can't stand in front of an orchestra. As a conductor, in my, in my opinion, you're, you're being disrespectful to, you know, Mike Steele, for instance, who started playing the violin age five or six, spent all his, all those years playing hours and hours and hours, finally gets into the CBSO and conductors turn up with having spent, you know, a couple of years maybe as a student conductor. You know, when, when you're a youngster, you're a, you're a kindergarten conductor if you're 20. Whereas as a violinist, if you're 20 and you've been playing for 15 years, you really know your way around the the, the instrument and music. So conductors, we, we kind of, yeah, we, we, we're always playing catch-up to get to the level of understanding and technique and musicianship and corporate playing and understanding of, the, you know, psychology and all the things we need to do as conductors. We're always playing catch-up. And only in the last couple of years honestly can I really feel now I sort of know what I'm doing you know I've I've caught up I've done I've put in those years and I've caught up and it's it's quite a nice feeling I have to say so yeah I do love teaching I lament the fact that I don't have enough time uh, to teach and I'm really thrilled that the Royal College of Music partly influenced by some you know conversations I had with the with the people there that They've just appointed a new head of conducting and I think things are going to take on a, a more structured and vibrant co- uh, way forward. And it's, it's wonderful to be involved. I love going in there, conducting the orchestras, having the master students alongside and working with them, working with these young young musicians is you know, invigorating and inspiring. I love it, absolutely love it.
0: So Martin, every conductor will be asked the same 10 questions at the end of the podcast. Um, so let's start. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: Birdsong, I love. I'm surrounded by birds here in the country. And muzak, I hate as a concept. Music in the background. If you had 24 hours free,
0: what would you spend it doing? Oh, gosh. Uh, Being with my family. Who would be your favourite
1: conductor of yesteryear? Uh, The one I admire the most probably is Carlos Kleiber. And the one who's influenced me the most would have to be Ilya Musin. And who would be a favourite current conductor? Um, Andris Nelsons. I love his, what he does and how he does it. What is the hardest work
0: you have ever conducted?
1: Oh, dear. That's really tricky. I mean, I suppose, since we talked about it earlier, the Gothic is tricky. Pli Célon-Plie, Boulez. Yeah, 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 that's hard. Really complex piece. Um, And Mozart. Because of its
0: beauty and simplicity, Because of its
1: perfection. Yeah, for, because it's perfect i mean as a conductor i'm always terrified about serving the music uh, adequately and i think mozart i find the hardest to to get close enough to when traveling abroad
0: to conduct what item or items could you not leave home without
1: this funnily enough I, <coughs> it's just twice this has come up today i have I don't know why, but, or how it started, but for many, many years, 30 more, 40 years, I've made tapestries. So I currently take with me always a bit of tapestry canvas, some wool, various colors, and some needles and a tiny pair of scissors. And I get home from rehearsal or whatever, and I sit and create stuff, colorful patterns and sometimes it's random shapes sometimes it's very uh, mathematical and geometrical shapes and uh, yeah it's something I've done forever and it's something I really value when I'm away from home on my own it's something I can sit and do and it's kind of a bit of art therapy but it's creative and you're making something what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? From my own personal conducting life, I spent too much time away from home when my children were young.
0: What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt?
1: Um, I got a sort of serious answer and a silly answer. I mean, given what's going on now, I have, and we've had, my wife's had fairly major brain surgery. Uh, I, I have such admiration for doctors. And the medical profession generally, not saying I would have been able to be, but it's a profession that I have the utmost respect for and the other thing, the other silly one, which I've often said, well, you know when I wished I wasn't going away, look I could always be a milkman because when I was a boy, my older brother had a milk round um I used to get up early and help him sometimes i I have no problem with getting up early in the morning. I love early mornings. I love the quiet, the peace. Yeah, so milkman milkman, or a doctor.
0: Brilliant. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal
1: and drink? Oh, gosh. Drink's easy. I'd have a, uh, one of my own uh, whiskies. I, m- I, my uncle and I bought a barrel of Springbank in 1996. And it's been subsequently been bottled when it was 16 years old. And uh, I've got several bottles uh, stashed away in my attic. It'd be one of those as a drink. M- meal, something Japanese. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I'm a great fan of Japanese food. Uh, but yeah, I can't be specific. I'm not, I'm not, that, not that specific about uh, my, my culinary tastes. But a
0: Japanese meal with whiskey is definitely something that the Japanese would appreciate. So I don't see why you shouldn't appreciate it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. What an absolute pleasure, Martin. Uh, It's been great to talk to you. Uh, I hope to see you again very, very
1: soon. And you, Michael. It's been wonderful uh, being able to share these thoughts with you. And I hope uh, some people have have a good laugh and enjoy hearing what we've been talking about.
0: A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal and with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who has conducted pretty much every orchestra in the UK and has an extremely busy career. He also has his very own orchestra, an orchestra that has had a huge global following ever since they made their debut at the BBC Proms in 2009. Until then, bye bye!